On October 30, 1938, Orson Welles caused a mass panic with his radio rendition of War of the Worlds. Aside from a brief mention at the beginning of the broadcast that it was a work of fiction, Orson went on as if the events unfolding were real, even skipping commercials so he didn't break the audience's immersion. Now, the level that the panic actually reached is debated. However, the lesson it taught us is clear. How easy our beliefs would come into question with the arrival of aliens, and how nefarious entities could take advantage of this idea. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Timeless Science Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Bella Anima. On this week's episode, we have part one of New Light, a story that deals with the power of belief. Stay tuned. New Light. Written by D.A. Augustine. Narrated by Nick Denton. Part 1. January 16, 2091. Lemnitzer Corp. Research Facility. Pluto's Moon, Sharon. In a small, cramped, dimly lit lab, dozens of scientists in white coats are huddled around one woman's desk. It's getting stronger, the woman seated at the desk remarks. It's like it's reacting to our presence, another man adds. Suddenly, a man in a fancy suit, who has been smoking in the back of the lab, steps out of the dark and asks, What does it want? The scientist stammers to answer the man's question. Enough, the man in the suit says. Can you communicate with it? Yes, sir, the scientist replies. But shouldn't we tell the council? I mean, this is our first contact with aliens. This is a business, not a charity. I'll find out what it wants, the man says confidently. Thirty-three years later, March 8th, 2124, Lunar City 1, the capital city of Earth's moon. In a rundown apartment building on the city's rough east side sits an old, worn private investigator named Jack. He sits in his chair with a bottle of whiskey in one hand and a picture of his ex-wife in the other. How do I end up like this? He mutters before taking another drink. He looks down at his loaded pistol sitting on the table in front of him. He never in his wildest dreams thought he'd end up like this. A once proud and famous P.I., reduced to an old drunk, alone, contemplating suicide. He sits there a moment before pushing the pistol away from him. Suddenly, his phone rings. He answers the phone. It's someone asking for J.R. Investigations. He hangs up and sits back down. A few moments pass, and then a knock on his door. He opens the door and finds a familiar man on the other end. You, the man exclaims. The man at the door chuckles and replies. Do you always hang up on prospective customers? I'm retired, Bill, Jack scowls. I'm aware, Jack. Let's just grab a bite at the diner down the street. 
Jack takes a few moments to think it over. On one hand, he wants to tell Bill to leave so he can spare himself from the sales job. On the other hand, he's broke, with only half a bottle of whiskey in the fridge. Jack reluctantly gives in to lunch, saying, Fine, but no talking business. Bill agrees, and the two head to the diner. Now at the diner, the two enjoy their meals. The P.I. scoffs down his food, but looks up and sees Bill has barely touched his food. Jack, sensing tension brewing, sighs and asks Bill, I'm not getting out of here without hearing your spiel, am I? Nope, Bill counters. I have a job for you. The P.I. wipes his mouth and leans back into his seat. Well, let's hear it. Bill leans in. It's a job that has to do with something... Well, odd. I'd only give it a small chance of being completely accurate, but if true, changes what it means to be... human. Look, a few days ago, Council HQ got a call. From Pluto. Jack interjects. Pluto. Those rich bastards would never call the Council. They handle everything themselves. There's been a whistleblower, Bill answers. They were frantic when they called saying something about missing children, employees disappearing and... Ugh. Secret alien contact. Now, as you know, the families on Pluto are super powerful, ultra-rich and have an army of lawyers, not to mention all the politicians they have in their pockets. The council never goes after them for anything. But there are some very opportunistic senators that want us to jump on this. Jack folds his arms and asks, So, what do you want with me? Bill takes a sip of his water, then adds, Well, normally, we send a few detectives in, but unfortunately, once they found out we were coming, they had their lawyer stall us by getting us all caught up in red tape. They won't allow us to send in biased detectives. They want an objective third party to accompany them. Jack stands up and thanks Bill for the mail and proceeds to exit the diner. Bill catches up with Jack on his way back to his decrepit apartment. Come on, Jack, we both know you need the money, Bill shouts. I'm retired, Bill. As Jack starts to open the door to his apartment lobby, Bill slams it shut. Sitting in your apartment rotting away isn't going to bring your wife back to you. She left. She's gone. You giving up something you're good at. Ain't gonna change anything. Jack forces the door open and walks into the lobby, where the landlord was waiting to collect his back rent. Where's my rent, Mr. Rotan? Jack stops in the middle of the lobby, puts his hands on his hips, looks up at the brown leaky ceiling and collects his thoughts, trying to think of any other way to pay the rent besides this job. He sighs and puts his head down. Bill. Pay the man. March 9th, 2124, UNC Transport Ship, Fulton's Creek. Jack sits strapped into a seat aboard a council transport vessel. Across the aisle sits the two detectives he's supposed to shadow. Young and pompous looking, Jack can already tell they'll be difficult. This is going to be a long one, he says to himself before taking a swig from his flask. He glances down and sees an incoming call from Bill. He answers with, If I'd known what type of detectives I was babysitting, I'd have charged you double. Jack, 
I need you to listen to me. Bill's tone is low and ominous. You were the only one I could trust in this job. I'm afraid our investigation may already be compromised. What are you saying, Bill? Jack asks. It seems that certain higher-ups in the council are only interested in finding the supposed aliens, no matter the cost. I knew from the beginning there was more to this than my superiors were letting on, but I feared that there is a lot they're leaving out. I received a message not long after you left from someone I know in Upper Admin. Those detectives have a second mystery agenda that I did not give them. They didn't say what it was, but it sounded menacing. I can't say for sure if they're authorised to use force or to not silence anyone in their way. Watch your back, Jack. Bail out. The line goes dead. Aliens, huh? Jack thinks to himself. Ridiculous. After several hours of sub-light speed travel, the ship arrives on the shores of Pluto. The ship's PA system dings and recites a pre-recorded message as the ship's crew is fully automated. We have reached the destination of Pluto. Please gather your personal belongings as we will be docking shortly. Thank you. Ready for the cold, old man? The lead detective asks. Jack looks at them, both tall, thin with jet black, slick back hair. Wearing their unified Nation Council uniforms, green-coloured, long-sleeved shirts with a UNC's emblem over the left breast. The top is accompanied by grey pressed pants and Council-issued black boots. Jack grunts and gathers a few more mini-bottles of booze from the snack bot. His attire is barely professional. Long black overcoat with a stained grey undershirt, with a warm pair of tan slacks and his trusty pair of ragged boots. Not to mention his unkept salt and pepper hair. He was sure to get plenty of looks from the mega-wealthy that lived on Pluto. The ship lands and the robot crew usher Jack, as well as the two detectives off the ship. Pluto has no cities or public spaceports, just several massive estates of the families that live there. As such, the transport was forced to land in a private space yacht hangar. As soon as Jack and the detectives step out of the transport, they are greeted by a representative from the first family they are supposed to question. He is not alone. With six fully loaded and heavily armed security bots, the family was sending a message. The message? They are in control here. You must be the welcome wagon, the lead detective asks. The man with a smug look replies. The Barton family has simply asked that I escort you to their home. I wouldn't refer to me as a welcome wagon, as you certainly aren't welcome here. The detective rolls his eyes and takes out a data slate from his back pocket. What's your name? he asks in a demanding voice. I'm Argus Fontaine, the Barton's family solicitor, the man proudly answers. The detective jots it down. Now please, this way, Argus politely requests. Argus leads him out of the hangar to a waiting six-wheeled SUV. Argus, the two detectives and Jack all climb in the back. While the six security bots hop in another SUV parked behind the one Jack and the others were in. Argus nods to the robot chauffeur in the driver's seat and the SUV takes off. Jack can't help but take in the luxury of the vehicle interior. It was all white with light blue lights outlining various parts of the interior, 
Jack then turns his gaze outside his window. It's snowing heavily outside. Not that there is much to see outside anyways. Just barren rocky terrain and tall towers that are part of the planet's terraforming system. But then off in the distance, Jack sees something odd. It appears miles and miles away. He can barely make it out as the vehicle moves further away from it. It looks like a massive silver pyramid, emanating some sort of teal green light. August notices Jack's gaze. Eyes forward, Mr. Rotan, he barks. This is private property after all. Jack, puzzled, asks Argus. I never told you my name. Didn't need to, Argus says. As soon as your ship entered Pluto's space, our scanners went to work. Your resume is very impressive, Mr. Rotan. Over 300 solved cases, with several high-profile ones under your belt as well. Like the ghost of Callisto murders. Jack looks back out the window but the pyramid is now out of sight. Annoyed, he answers Argus. That was a long time ago. Argus smirks. Indeed. You haven't taken a case for over a year. Yeah, well this job gets to you after a while. Argus just smiles before telling Jack that he must confiscate the alcohol he smuggled off the ship, citing security protocols. Jack grudgingly complies. The SUV stops at a huge grey wall that stretches as far as Jack can see. Jack estimates it's at least 30 foot high. There is a pair of doors built into the wall that are directly in front of the vehicle. A green beam of light comes out of a black slot above the doors. The light scans over the vehicle. After a few seconds, it stops. Jack hears a loud beeping sound. After the beeping sound stops, the doors open and the SUV drives through while the SUV containing the security bots peels off away from the gates. Argus looks at Jack and the detectives and says, Welcome to the Barton Estate. At first, Jack just sees more of the same, but then it comes into view. A massive building that is surrounded by a large lake made up of some sort of fluorescent bluish liquid. The building is long, not tall, and the front looks made up of large dark windows. The SUV drives over a bridge and then into a large garage on the building's far side. Once inside the garage, the SUV stops and its occupants exit the vehicle. Now in the garage, a woman in a pearl-white dress waits to greet them. She's tall and young with bright white hair. She's wearing bright red lipstick that enhances her blue eyes. Argus speaks first. Gentlemen, Allow me to introduce you to Lady Barton, Baroness of the Estate. The woman smiles and says, Don't let the silly title fool you. I just live here. <laughs> the head detective gets straight to the point. We have questions for you, Miss Barton. Oh, yes, yes, she replies. My husband will be home soon, and you can ask your questions over dinner. Argus, take them to get washed up for dinner. Argus complies by taking them to the compound's washrooms. Afterward, they are seated at an odd-shaped table located in the house's luxurious dining room. Jack can't help but notice strange artwork throughout the house. One caught his eye. A picture of a young girl and boy standing in a foggy field, looking up to the sky, and a bright pair of red lights looking back from behind the fog. His attention is snatched away as the dining room doors swing open and a tall man with dark grey hair 
a handlebar moustache and a fancy suit, bursts through the door. He slams his fist on the table and screams, You have no right to be here! August scurries into the room and puts his hands on the man's shoulders. He whispers something into the man's ear, and the two head back out of the dining room. But before they do, the man shouts, No right! The detectives look over at each other, puzzled. A few moments later, Lady Barton, followed by a few servant bots, lay out an extravagant spread. Jack hopes there are more people joining the dinner, as the amount of food laid out is absurd. I hope you boys are hungry, the Baroness comments as she enters the dining room before seating herself. The door swings back open, and the tall man walks back into the room. Argus follows closely behind. The tall man walks up to the table, anxiously. Listen, uh, I'm sorry if I seemed rude. I just have a lot on my mind. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Alistair Barton, owner of this estate. My friend and counsel, Mr. Fontaine, has advised me to cooperate with you gentlemen, so I trust that you will forgive my early behavior and let us enjoy dinner. Jack and the other men agree. The dinner starts as the bots start serving the food to the occupants of the table. The head detective starts to ask a question, but abruptly stops himself as the Bartons start eating. He, as well as Jack and the junior detective, are in a light shock as the Bartons scoff down their food like savage wolves. They tear apart the special beef dish with their bare hands. They almost seem to choke on it from the voracity of their consumption. Finally, the head detective speaks up. Are the kids going to join us? The Baroness doesn't even look up from her plate. Slightly annoyed, she answers the question with a quick, They're asleep. The lead detective, slightly annoyed, asks, Your intel said you had a living nanny. We'll need to speak with her to get everyone's story down. The woman seems to be so engrossed in the consumption of the meat that Argus speaks up. You will be given access to the family's in-home care assistant shortly. The two detectives try to keep up small talk with the Bartons, but to no avail. They ignore them, leaving Argus to cordially respond to their small talk. Jack notices something odd the Bartons are wearing. They both have on a small diamond-shaped amulet. Every few seconds it glows a light teal green that seemed to radiate like a mist on a cold earth morning. Normally he wouldn't think anything of it. Rich people wear weird jewellery. But this jewellery is letting off the same colour as the mysterious pyramid structure he saw earlier. After the meal concluded, seven bots entered the room and cleared out the dishes. Afterward, Argus again speaks up. All right, gentlemen. As promised, the home care assistant will be brought in. The detectives seem to be delighted, but Jack is sceptical. Their whole time on Pluto had been strange. Why has their nanny been held away until now? Why would she not have been to dinner? Better to get everyone's story all at once, right? What was the point of the dinner anyways? No questions were answered anyway. The doors once again swing open, and while the servant bots drag in, appalls the detectives. But Jack isn't surprised at all. What the bots carried in was a female bot. Mr. Barton speaks first. Yes, she started acting up a few weeks ago. She finally crashed last night. The lead detective, unable to hold his rage back any longer, snaps. He opens his data slate and berates the Bartons. Look, 
you have an Esmeralda Gomez registered as a house employee. If I scroll down and tap on a job title, what does it say? House care assistant. Now, the more you play these fucking games, the more I know there is something going on here you don't want me to find out. Mr. Barton starts to speak first, but August stops him and speaks in his stead. Let's calm down here, shall we? Mrs. Gomez did work here, but she wasn't the nanny. She worked as a chef. When she went on her off-world rotation, she never came back. None of us here are aware of her whereabouts, I can assure you. Your records are out of date. <laughs> That's what you're going with? The lead detective scoffs. There are plenty of plausible explanations. For instance, hackers often like to attack wealthy individuals such as my clients here. It's within reason to assume something like that took place. Just a month ago, a hacker group got in and it scrambled our system. The lead detective snaps back. Wealthy clients have the money for wealthy security. No way they'd have got that far with us not hearing from a security firm asking us to bring up charges on these hackers. August answers quickly. That is just one possibility. There are more sinister beliefs about what happened to our poor chef. Like what? The clearly agitated detective asks. That the UNC was just looking for a reason to harass the wealthy residents of this great planet. Maybe they'd go as far as bribing an off-world furloughed employee into, I don't know, giving up information to use against us, using them as a false whistleblower. Don't look so shocked. Those in power would love to see the residents of Pluto bow under their rule like the rest of humanity does. Planting something scandalous as a reason to investigate does not only sound plausible, but probable. The lead detective pushes his chair away from the table, stands up, and demands. Enough! You've had us going round in circles for too long. The Lady Baron stands up and screams for him to be quiet. She then whispers, You might wake the children. She then twitches and says it again, and again, like she's on a loop. Mr. Barton stands up from his seat and pulls his wife up from her chair. Mr. Barton then escorts his wife out of the room. He insists she's drunk too much. After they leave the room, Argus stands up and walks around the table. Listen, guys, I have to level with you, he says with a much more laid-back tone. He continues, I know I may have seemed a little crass today, but you guys can obviously see I have my hands full here. So why don't you all stay the night in our lavish guest house, and once Miss Barton feels better, you guys can have all access to everything you want, as long as it's to help your investigation. The lead detective rubs his eyes and takes a few moments to respond. Listen to me. I'm fed up with this shit show you've put on. If you stall, or so much as cast another wasted moment tomorrow, I'll have you all arrested and sent back to Earth on obstruction charges. August shrugs. You'd be doing yourself a favor by waiting till tomorrow anyway. You see, the estate's data center is protected by a sophisticated biometric key. They can only be accessed by the Bartons. They are very paranoid, I'm afraid. I suppose most trillionaires are, at least in my experience. The lead detective leans over the table and sternly stares at Argus. You will not impede my investigation any further. Argus doesn't budge. So, are you staying then? The lead detective stares down Argus for a few moments, 
before relenting. Fine, show us to the guest house, but I want full access to all security systems first thing tomorrow morning. Of course, August says excitedly. Now, Jack and the two detectives are led to a structure that sits behind the Barton's home. It's a medium triangle-shaped building made up of dark glass windows. On the front of the building stands a gigantic door with a peculiar artwork painted on it. The art depicted a large dragon knocking several stars out of the sky with its tail. The end of the tail acts as the door handle. The handle is outlined by ancient text. Sumerian, if Jack had to guess. Once inside, the three are taken to a guest room with four beds and a table. August tells them to make themselves at home, and he would be back in the morning. Almost instantly after August leaves, the men start discussing the night and how it had gone. They're definitely hiding something, the lead detective states confidently. Jack chuckles. You think? The lady gets escorted out because she's had too much to drink, after drinking half a glass of wine. The junior detective shakes his head. Arrogant bastards. Probably gonna get their lawyers to get a judge to grant an injunction overnight and send us packing in the morning. The three men sit there in silence for a few seconds. The lead detective grabs a bottle of bourbon that he'd hidden in the back of his jacket. Listen, he says to Jack, we got off on the wrong foot. I just don't like being babysat. Jack's eyes light up. I can understand that. Pull me a shot of that and we're good. The junior detective asks his partner where he got the bourbon. I snagged it off the dinner table before we were leaving. Rich can't owe me this much for wasting our time. The lead detective grabs three glass cups that were sitting on the table next to a water pitcher. Jack watches as the lead detective begins pouring the drinks, but his gaze is stolen away by the junior detective, asking him more questions about the case so far. Jack doesn't see the lead detective adding something to his drink. The lead detective hands out the drinks and proposes a toast. To justice. Cheers, the men reply, before clinking their cups together and downing the bourbon. Ooh, Jack exclaims. Pour me another. The detectives just look at him. What? Jack asks before suddenly feeling a fogginess fill his head. The two detectives get up and start going through their bags. He shakes his head and again asks the detective a question. What the hell did you put in my drink? The junior detective looks back and laughs. Sorry, mate, but what we're about to do is a little above your pay grade. Jack starts to lose consciousness, slowly. The detectives take what looks like a black laptop out of their backs and put them on the table. They enter codes on their data slates, and the black laptops conform and contort into many 3D printers. The detectives then start taking everything out of the room that's plastic, as well as metal, and feed it into the printer. The machine prints out two assault rifles with ammunition to go with it. It then starts printing something else out. But Jack passes out completely before he can see what it is. Next thing Jack knows, he's in his old house, lying in bed with his beloved ex-wife. He knows he is dreaming because it's the same dream he pays designer dreams to have every night. He thought he'd have got tired of it by now. But laying there holding her, Looking at the back of her blonde hair in the dead of night was the only time he felt at peace anymore. He lay there in silence, thinking about his life. All the success, all the failure, and all the fame, none of it meant a damn thing to him anymore. 
He just wished he'd realized that in time to save his marriage. But he'd made his choice. Nothing he can do to change it. He continues his dream till he hears a faint, wake up. He hears it again, only louder. He hears it once more, so loud it snaps him out of his slumber. He opens his eyes and finds the lead detective covered in blood, barricading the door like a madman. Noticing that the junior detective is gone, Jack asks the lead detective if he's okay. The detective turns and walks over to Jack. Jack can tell that the blood doesn't belong to the detective and that he's clearly shaken. The detective grabs Jack by the shoulders and haughtingly utters, We have to get out of here. End of part one. What terrors await Jack? Tune in on Thursday after next to find out. Thank you for listening and stay timeless.